As most of you are aware, there are three pastors of Piney Ridge Church, Pastor Steve, Nathan, and myself, uh, and we, we often we share the uh, preaching schedule and rotation, and today was supposed to be Nathan's uh, schedule to preach, but because he is due to have a baby here, well, his wife is, any moment now, um, one of our covenant members who is well experienced and educated in preaching has agreed to be preaching for us today the Word of God. Um, Ryan Heider, uh, Ryan, you can come on up, actually. Uh, he, is, um, he is gifted and has an eager desire to bless the church and to serve you all. And so I want to pray over him and for us before he preaches. God, I thank you that you have Lord, given gifts to your people. I thank you that you are worthy of receiving them. And God, I thank you that you, by your spirit, show up, you manifest yourself, Lord, when we submit to you in obedience and in faith to use the gifts you've given us, I pray now for Ryan that you would, you would do that, that you would work mightily and mercifully through the proclamation of your word and that we would receive it as such. Lord, I pray, God, for all who are here today, that we wouldn't be distracted upon hearing your word. God, if there's struggles, there's concerns, there's sin, there's fears, Lord, and anxieties. Lord, I pray that you would remove them from our minds, Lord, as we hear from you. I pray for those who are hurting, that you would comfort them so that they may be able to hear your word. Lord, I pray specifically for the Whittington family and Lori and her parents um, seeking to and trying to recover from COVID. I pray especially for her dad, Steve that you would bring healing to his body. I pray for Sue, that you would give her comfort, and for Lori and for all their children and grandchildren, God, that you would give great peace as they trust you. Lord, and for all those who are here today with, God, with ailments or with a need of provision, God, or need of courage and confidence, God, need of comfort, that you would bring it. God, so that in all these things we would turn to you and trust you, and as I said, Lord, so that in all these things, we, they would be removed as distractions. God, even through the preaching of your word, would you answer this prayer and lead us to respond with faith, humility, and obedience for the glory of your name, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Good morning. Well, it's a privilege to address you from the word of God this morning. We're in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 16. <clears throat> Guess you can remain seated. <laughs> Exodus 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Sometime around uh, third or fourth grade, <clears throat> We were living in a duplex at the time, and the tenant on the other side of the building uh, had a very side, a, a, a little small side yard, and for whatever reason, the side yard was a perpetual state of gooey mud. Uh, for a third grader, it was a, a state of glorious to play in, frolic in, dig in, make little soccer balls, and kick them in mud. And having indulged myself in said mud many times, uh, my mother came home from work one day and laid down the law. 
you shall not dig in the neighbor's mud. I'm not sure if she knew if it was rude or the neighbor had said something, but uh, with the commandment set forth, I would not do it again. All right. Well, sometime later, I'm out hanging with my homies, cruising the streets, looking for trouble, and uh, one of them dubiously suggested that we all go dig in the neighbor's mud. Hmm. Sounded fun, but my rear end started to tingle, and I said, guys, I can't. I'm not allowed. And they, oh, come on, commenced and whatnot. And shortly thereafter, we ended up in the side yard. But like Paul at the stoning of Stephen, I looked on while my cohorts played in, kicked in, and dug in the neighbor's mud. I looked on and did not myself indulge. However, and this is the suspense element of the story, my older brother, as it turned out, also happened to be gallivanting about with his posse, and he came around the corner of the house right at that time, saw the situation, mouth agape because he too was aware of my mother's commandment. I ran after him. I protested to no avail. When mom came home, she called me in, demanded an explanation, and folks, I tried. I genuinely tried. But after my many protests, I'll never forget the climactic moment when the belt has been removed from the closet. I'm bent over the bed. Lashing is ready to commence. And my mother, I'm still protesting and denying that I had done it. My mother just looked over her shoulder. My brother was standing in the doorway looking on. He just closed his eyes and (laughs) nodded his head. And the punishment was delivered. And for my part, I have not forgiven my brother to this day. (laughs) My mom has asked me to just, now that she believes me, she's asked me to just withdraw that spanking and apply it to one of the other that I never received. Well, that's that's one way of bearing false witness against your brother, against your neighbor. Um, He wasn't totally lying. He was exaggerating what he saw, misconstruing what he saw. Uh, That's all of a flavor of bearing false witness. And that one didn't end up causing all that much devastation. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. I've now been through not one, but two absolutely devastating church splits, both of which can trace their roots back to someone spreading false information about the leaders. It was usually a half-truth, usually something twisted, something not the, not the full picture, misconstrued. <clears throat> In the scriptures, we could look and see Satan exaggerating, deceiving Adam and Eve, impugning God's motives, and the entire human race falling into deadly sin. We could look at Absalom crafting a campaign against his own father, King David, and causing the nation of Israel to split and go at war against each other. We could look at Ananias and Sapphira lying about the sale of their land and dropping dead right there on the spot. Or we could talk about uh, Achan who deceptively stole treasure in the Battle of Jericho, which led not only to his death and his family's death, but ultimately to the death of 36 other Israelites' soldiers. And so this text serves as a warning from God that misery, destruction, and even death follow in the wake of our deception. And most importantly, the Lord is not pleased. In the era of fake news, divisive politics, extreme relativism where a girl can say she's a boy and a boy can say 
he's a girl. In a time when our microphone, our, our mic, a time when our leaders can stand at a microphone and lie right to our faces on national TV, but it's fine because we wouldn't believe a word they said anyway. Beloved, we need to hear from God this morning. We need to see the God of truth and justice this morning sit, sitting on his throne, and we need to humbly submit to his instruction. So let's jump into our text, Exodus 20, verse 16. Again, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Typically, when the Ten Commandments are summarized, if we're just quoting them or we're trying to summarize them and put them on a plaque and hang them on our wall, how do we always summarize this Ninth Commandment? Don't lie. Don't lie. In my opinion, I'm going to suggest to you this morning, that's a, that's a bad summary. That's a really inadequate summary of this commandment. Of course, it's a valid application of the command, but it's not the main thrust of this commandment. Now, in verse 16, God is commending or commanding us to love your neighbor by speaking truthfully for them. Love your neighbor by speaking truthfully for them. I'm just trying to restate positively what the command is prohibiting. And that's the structure of my sermon this morning. I'm going to unpack it in three parts. So love your neighbor by speaking truthfully for them. Let's start at the beginning. Love your neighbor, point one. <laughs> now, where do I get that from? That's not even in this verse. Well, take a look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. One of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is summarizing for us what are called the two ta tables or two tablets of the law. You see, the, the first four commandments, the Ten Commandments, are all about our relationship with God and loving the Lord our God with all that we have. But the, the second six commandments, Jesus says, are about loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we can look at all six commandments and you can go back through and read them and just see how they're all, every commandment is neighbor-oriented on the second half of the Ten Commandments. And so the, the main point of the Ninth Commandment is not just me, myself, and I, and what I do between me and God, the, 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 the main point is me loving you with my words and with my speech and with my tongue. So look around you for a second. I know nobody's going to actually do that. So just think in your brain about the people that are around you at this moment, the family sitting in front of you, behind you. These are your neighbors. And much like he was doing right here in Exodus 20, God is building a new community. That's what's happening in Exodus 20. That's what's happening today. God is building a new community, a new nation of chosen people. And these people sitting around you right now are the ones who will live and breathe and serve and work and worship with you in the new Jerusalem. <clears throat> For 10,000 years and 10,000 more years, these are your people. And that new community that belongs to the eternal ages, we call it the New Jerusalem, it has pierced into this current age right here in tiny seed form. And you're sitting next to it. We are the first fruits of the New Jerusalem people. 
And the pillar, or one of the pillars, one of the, the core footings of this community that God is building right here is love your neighbor as yourself. In this family where God is head, you dare not dishonor him by unlovingly slashing at other members of his house. Instead, the Lord of hosts is calling us like a stern father to use our words to sustain, to use our tongue to build up and lift up one another. These are the words we are to speak to and about one another in this new covenant community. And the kinds of words that malign, the kinds of speech that diminishes, makes, feel, makes you feel small, slanders, hates one another, have been forever banished by the Lord of this kingdom. You know, I scare somebody, sorry. Getting a little excited. You know, like, like many of you, probably mostly the guys, um, I like my truck. Uh, not the biggest, baddest truck in the world, but it's mine and I like it. And as, as much as possible, because I like it, I have a deep desire to protect it from scratches and scrapes. And so when on an early spring day, one of my five wonderful children go outside to perhaps ride their scooters or throw a Frisbee, like the evil Lord Sauron, I have an all-seeing, ever-seeing eye <clears throat> on the driveway. Should, <laughs> should a stick or basketball or a scooter get too close, I can be out there faster than Flash Gordon uh, to protect my baby, my truck, of course. Guys, how much more does God yearn jealously over his children. Maybe for you, it's not your truck, it's your books or your collections or your furniture, all of which will someday end up in a junkyard or be sold at auction when we die. But these people, this family, this community was purchased by the eternal God to be his prized possession. Not a truck, it's sitting in this room, God's prized possession. And he paid dearly he paid with the precious blood of his only begotten. And so he yearns jealously for them. I'll speak more about this perhaps in a few minutes, but I just want to honestly mention something here. Our social media presence does not get a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to loving our neighbor with our words. Over the past few years, there have been astounding, astounding things posted or commented on Facebook and Twitter and now other platforms by covenanted church members, whether here or churches I've belonged to in the past. I'm sure you've seen them. Astounding things that, let's be honest, are downright mean. Just mean things. Hateful, rude Intended for one thing and one thing only, to tear somebody down. And I just don't think that God meant this command to come with an asterisk of love your neighbor by speaking truthfully for them, fine print, except on Facebook. Facebook's fine. You can do whatever you want. I mean, Facebook, you know, that place you're publicly representing me to literally all of your friends and your friends' friends, I don't care about that. That's fine. Say whatever you want on Facebook. Clearly, that's not God's intention. Your words are your words. 
whether you speak them, text them, email them, or post them. Literally, literally, the second greatest commandment, according to King Jesus, is love your neighbor as yourself. That right there, with nothing else said, precludes us from spewing filth and hate with our words as we troll the internet. When we violate one another by speaking harmfully and degradingly and, God forbid, falsely of one another, we are invoking the jealous, passionate protection of the father of this little heavenly family. We dare not. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Honor God by loving your neighbor with your words. That's point one. Point number two. Love your neighbor by not speaking falsely. Love your neighbor by not speaking falsely, but rather by speaking truthfully about them. This is the heart of the commandment, right? Speak truthfully, not falsely. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Bear truthful witness. Why, though? Why? Sometimes it's helpful to ask the Scriptures why when you're studying. Why is it important? Why is this command a a pillar of the nation of Israel and therefore of Jesus' church? Two, Two main reasons. Number one, because the character of God demands it. Because the character of God demands it. Other gods around Israel with a, other gods with a lowercase g, they might trifle with the truth. Other gods might, you know, of other nations might lie, or maybe they're like trickster gods or deceptive gods trying to get people to do what they want. But Israel's God, our God, is a God so powerful that whatever he thinks, whatever he speaks, is reality simply because he thought it, simply because he spoke it. That's the power of the word emanating from God's mouth. That's why the scriptures teach us literally God cannot lie. The Bible says it is impossible for God to lie. He is the truth. Falsehood and lies and deceit flee from before him. And because justice, this will be fun to talk about, but because justice is a function of truth, maybe something for you to talk about a small group, because justice is a function of truth, he is therefore the God of truth and justice. Truth and justice are not peripheral, secondary issues. They are at the core of the glory of God. That's reason number one, this is important. Reason number two, why this command is vital and foundational is because the life of the community depends on it. Once Israel's in the promised land, bad things are going to happen, of course. Um, What should they do? Should they just ask the parties involved like we ask our children, well, who started it? Okay, you're, you're in trouble. They won't have forensic analysis. They won't have wireless security cameras and DNA testing to prove the guilty party. And so it is vital, God is telling them, vital in literal sense of the word, it is necessary for life that all parties testify truthfully. The life of the community absolutely depends upon it. If folks go around lying about what they saw, there will be no justice and God's personhood himself will be violated. Now, as this command gets repeated throughout the Old Testament, God is so concerned about justice here that a person cannot be held guilty of a crime without the testimony of two or three supporting witnesses. One is not enough. Listen to Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. That's very sweeping. Any, any, any. Not a single witness ever. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses 
shall a charge be established, period. Truth and justice are too important, and we are too sinful. (laughs) A single person can mistake what they saw, see my brother, (laughs) or misconstrue what they witnessed, or exaggerate. We have this repeated in the New Testament as well. Um, In the case of church discipline, Jesus says, you know, if you've already gone to your brother and talked to him once, then he doesn't listen, take two or three with you, quote, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So our Lord is reiterating that as well. Still true. It's not just for Old Testament Israel and the promised land. It's still true. Paul even applies it to the church and says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Starting to get the the feeling that this applies to our life at large, right? And so we see throughout every stage of biblical history, then and now and into eternity, we see the heart and the passion of God for pure, unadulterated truth and justice. The two go hand in hand. That's why the Israelites, and that's why PRC Church has the command to be a people passionate for the truth with the passion of our Father. It is vital because of the character of God and because the life of the community depends upon it. It is vital that we truthfully and accurately speak of one another. Now I want to give you a few specific ways that we should commit to speaking truthfully about one another. Number one, we should commit to speaking truthfully about one another by being slow and careful with our facts. By being slow and careful with our facts. This is what God and Moses and Jesus and Paul are getting at when requiring at least two, better three, witnesses for any and every accusation. Slow down. One is not enough. Slow down. In the Scriptures, there's a presumption of innocence. One one person saw murder. It's not enough. It's not enough. The truth is too important to just believe anything anybody says about everyone. You feel that? God put rules and guidelines in place to make sure we get this right. We as God's people today are to have this same careful handling of the facts as our operating principle in life. Your family, children, at work, in the church, on Facebook, in politics. Instead of that, (laughs) how many times have we, or I, you can raise your hand if you want, shared a piece of news that we saw with a friend, right? Oh yeah, I, I read this cool thing, or I heard that North Korea is putting microchips in everybody. You, you just hear something, and you, you, you tell somebody else. And when they say, really? Or tell me more. What happened? You say, actually, I only just scrolling through Facebook and saw the headline, but I didn't actually click and read it. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> we're, good, we're good headline readers. Jesus is so passionate that all his brothers are represented truthfully that he says two or three witnesses are needed for every accusation of sin in the church. Paul says if someone's talking to you and impugns the motive of the pastor, don't listen to it. Don't entertain it without at least two or three witnesses. We are so careless with the truth that someone can just suggest something to us. We can just read a 10-word headline as we're scrolling through on Facebook and we accept it as truth and pass it along to our friends. We talk about conspiracy theories, believe what we heard in a podcast, and declare things we learned off the internet like we have a PhD. Brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
what happened to our careful handling of the truth? Instead, as Piney Ridge Church, a, a microcosm of the new Jerusalem that will soon come down from heaven, let's commit to reflecting and satisfying the justice of God by only speaking truth about one another and to one another. Number two, we should commit to speaking truthfully about one another by not repeating unsubstantiated reports. The best way I can say this is that we should be gossip cul-de-sacs. Be a gossip cul-de-sac. We wear a big sign on our chest that says, no through traffic. No through traffic. When we hear gossip or hearsay, it stops with us. It dead ends with us. We shouldn't want to hear unsubstantiating statements, but if somebody has told us before we can stop them, we are a dead end street. That information is not passing through us to someone else, or we're now the false witness, right? As soon as you do, now you are the one bearing false witness. No, we commit to not speak things, not pass them through onto the next person, and by therefore and thereby honor our God. You know, when you hear something or read something or watch a YouTube video about something, you don't actually have to repost it. There's, there's actually no obligation to comment on Facebook. When I share a news article or take it upon myself to tell someone else what I read or watched, I'm now bearing witness about that statement, about the statements in that document or that news article or whatever. I'm now bearing witness. You ever think about that? When you hit share and say, check it out, you're, you're handing this to your friend saying, here's some truth, here's some truth for you. You're bearing witness. I'm choosing now to be the teller, the speaker, the witness bearer. And by choosing to interact with that information, I'm assuming, I'm assuming the responsibility of its truthfulness. Before, I choose, before you choose to relay that information, you're not bearing witness about it, and therefore you're not responsible for it. But once you choose to interact with it, once you choose to share or forward or whatever, we're willingly stepping into the realm of the ninth commandment. And remember, the passionate justice of God that demands that you and I speak truthfully about our neighbor. Is it true? Do you know that it's true? Is it gossip? Is it substantiated by two or three witnesses? Or are, are we choosing to insert ourselves as possibly an instrument of Satan in disseminating false information, in maligning people, harming human beings? Don't repeat it. Don't entertain it if it's unsubstantiated, whether it's accusations or news or somebody impugning somebody else's motives. Number three, we should commit to speaking truthfully about one another by not assuming motives. I just said that. I read ahead on accident. <clears throat> by not assuming or imputing motives. There have been so many times in my life, usually I'm talking to my bride, telling her about a text or an email I receive, maybe from some of you even. <laughs> and I'll tell her, you know, the reason they said that is because they're mad that I said that or you know, the reason that so-and-so did that is because I did this. And my wife will calmly remind me, honey, you don't know. You shouldn't assume. To which I'll humbly proclaim, of course I know. 100% No, that's what he's doing. And I, I didn't feel the evil of that until I was preparing this sermon. Since I am not God and cannot see into your heart, and you cannot see into mine, there is no way for you to impugn my motive. 
There's no opportunity for that. Literally, it cannot be validated by two or three witnesses because we are not the Lord. <clears throat> so if you're listening, if you're on the listening end of a conversation like that, you are commanded to not entertain it. And I take entertaining it to mean to sit idly by and continue to listen to it, to continue to interact with it, or perhaps even to pass it on. We can ask the other person to stop. So I'll wrap up the second point with some, some just terrifying words directly from King Jesus. This is Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I didn't really mean that when I said that. Or, well, I didn't even read the article, Jesus. I just saw the headline. Won't be our excuse. Every careless word. Point number three. Love your neighbor by truthfully speaking for them. Love your neighbor by truthfully speaking for them. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Against your neighbor. Against is a very strong, loaded preposition. Instead, you love your neighbor by speaking truthfully for them. Don't bear false witness against them. Speak for them. The principle of this command, the, the principle here is expressed perfectly in Ephesians 4.29, which Paul read earlier. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I'll never forget, we had a, a family over one time, and we were all sitting around chatting, husband and wife on the couch. We were, we were sitting there listening and they started talking to us about their son. Um, and, you know, these parents were talking about how their son just wasn't any good at school, was lazy, was doing poorly, was just really, they were just giving him an overall, like, D minus in life. And he was sitting on the couch with them. It was so painful and awkward. Why? Because parents are universally supposed to be for their children, right? You're for them. You want good things for them. <clears throat> if, if you're against them, it just feels like the universe is upside down. And one of the good things you want for your sons and your daughters is a good name, is to be well thought of by others. Would you like your children to grow up and have a good job and have a good income to provide for their families? Of course. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. A good name is greater than great riches. Even more valuable than riches, the Scripture says, you should want them to have a good reputation. And as a parent, you should help craft and create and support their good name by speaking well of them, by rejoicing over them in others' presence. Why? Because you're for them, not against them. You're for them. That's how you express your forness. It just feels all wrong when you're not. After explaining that God lovingly adopted us, the Apostle Paul then asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. He is totally for us, right? We're on his team. 
God is not an angry dad sitting in the stands at a baseball game, slashing at his son for missing the pitch, slashing at him for not trying hard enough, slashing at him for not being good enough. He tenderly cares for his bruised reeds. He speaks words of life and love to heal us and bind us up and, and fan the flames of our weak faith. He's for us. And that's why in his family, in his house, his children love their neighbor by speaking for them. How do we do that? In what ways are we to speak for our neighbors, our friends, our family and coworkers? Lots of ways, but I'm going to give you four specific ways I think are pertinent to the text here. Number one, we speak lovingly for our neighbor by verbally promoting them. By verbally promoting them. If in this covenant community, God is for us, and if one of the most valuable things that we all have here is a good name, which it is, then we can rightly reason that we ought to love one another by promoting one another's good name. Right? Follow with me? <clears throat> Being for our neighbor means wanting that person to be well thought of in the community, to have a good reputation, to be respected by others. And so we do that by supporting their good name, even helping them craft a good name in this community. If a husband is for his wife, if a wife is for her husband, then they won't complain and nag about the other person, especially around others. Instead, they'll praise them. They'll say nice, complimentary things about that person. Pastor Steve has been a great example of this to me and my wife. He regularly and consistently speaks highly of his bride in our Piney family gatherings. He praises her for her growth and for her spiritual fruit. And nobody sits back and says, ew, gross, right? Instead, we, we lean in and we think, oh, there's a godly man who's faithful to his covenant relationship. And then we think, and there's a godly woman who honors and serves and loves her husband and her Lord. And guess what? That's exactly what he wants us to think. <laughs> right? That's what he wants us to think because that's what he should want us to think. He loves his wife by promoting her good name. I know, church, that it can feel awkward at times when we stand up here and praise, not we, but they, you know, we praise each other. That can feel a little awkward. Um, we can be the heart police and be like, oh, I hope they're not going to get prideful. <clears throat> but let's not be afraid of helping our friends here by saying nice things about one another. Let's be free with our praise and support of one another. Let's not be afraid to praise a brother for, for his demonstration of strength and to do that in front of each other. Let's not be afraid to praise our sister for her careful planning and sacrificial service and consistent parenting. Let's build up. Let the, the, the building up of one another just ring from this place. Why? Because we love one another by being for each other. We love one another with the love that we have received from our Father. And because a good name is more precious than riches, we want that for each other. And we promote that for each other. Number two, speak lovingly for them by sticking up for them. Boy, is it hot in here or what? Speak lovingly for them by sticking up for them. If we love our, our neighbor by speaking for their reputation because it is more precious than gold, then when we are in the presence of somebody dragging down 
their good name or casting a vision of somebody that's derogatory, we push back. We push back, right? We love the person being talked about, and therefore we don't want them to be thought of poorly by others. Next time you're in a conversation and, and one, of, one of you starts complaining about someone else or mocking or belittling them, just ask them to stop. Just ask him to stop. Please don't say that. He's a faithful man who loves God and loves his family, and I don't want to hear it anymore. I, I, I wonder what, including myself, I wonder what we're so scared of in those situations. It's hard to say something, isn't it? It's just really easy just to let them, just to be like, ugh, and just let them keep going. It's hard to say something. But what, what are we afraid of? I, I, we're, we're afraid that the other person is going to think that we love the person being talked about. Don't we? Right? The one for whom the infinitely precious blood of Christ was shed. Don't we love that person? God surely does. We love our neighbors here by not letting their good name get dragged in the mud by a verbal bully. Let me ask you a question. If a sketchy person walked in here right now and just started going around purse to purse to purse, snatching wallets, is there anybody man enough in here to stand up and say something to that person? Do you think we have several men in here that would jump on them, tackle them, hopefully not shoot them, but <laughs> we, we have plenty of these guys because they love the people that are being stolen from, because they love the people that are being harmed. Listen, Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. These people in here have a possession more valuable than anything they have in their purse or their wallet. It's their good name. It's their reputation, their honor, and their good name. So why would we take a bullet to protect the purse and yet keep our mouth shut and stay silent when their more valuable name is being smeared? Men of God and women of God, arise! We are here for the honor and glory of God, to love one another by speaking to protect each other, by speaking for one another. How many, how many, this hurts, evil church fights and divisions would have been prevented if the covenant community loved one another enough to stand up and say something about the malicious gossip that was happening, about the, the backbiting that was happening. <clears throat> Number three, speak lovingly for them by rejoicing for them. There's a, there's a deep and selfish competitiveness in us, unfortunately, that Satan leverages to keep us from wanting good things for our neighbors. If you're scrolling down your news feed, I got a lot of Facebook in this sermon. Uh, if you're scrolling down your news feed and you see your friend you know, bought something new, something that you wanted or something that's better than you, or just got pregnant and you want to get pregnant, or left for vacation and you don't have enough money to go on vacation right now, when you're doing that and you feel that pang of selfish envy, <clears throat> when you have that flash of jealousy instead of being happy for their success, if you find yourself bristling at the successes or praises of others, I call you to repent. That is not love. When you feel that, recognize it for what it is and turn away from it instead of leaning into it. Don't, don't give it voice. Don't speak it. Don't complain about it to your spouse. Shove it away from your heart and ask for mercy. 
and ultimately practice putting that to death by instead speaking and vocalizing joy on their behalf. Give them a like. (laughs) Mention it to them when when you see them. Express your happiness for what they did or where they went or the baby they're having. You see, be with them, be for them with your joy, with your joy. Your joy is not just for you. It's given to you, not just to be used for you, but to be leveraged in your community for the honor and glory of God. So love your neighbor by utilizing your joy on on their behalf. And finally, speak lovingly for them by, number four, sorrowing with them. This is perhaps the deepest expression of being for your neighbor. As a few years back, um, before we moved out this way, we, we, bought a, we bought one of those beta fish, beta fish, uh, for my middle daughter. And if you don't know, I'll just tell you, a beta fish hardly qualifies as a living being. It, it does basically nothing. You can't cuddle with it. You can't pet it. It barely moves. It lives in like a vase or something. <clears throat> so we got one of these things, and my daughter named it wonderfully because she was four or five. She named it Johnson Shut-Ins, guys. I, I'm not sure. It's a good name. So, good old Johnson. One day, the inevitable happened. I guess they have a short life. Uh, Jessica and I came downstairs, and there was Johnson Shut-Ins, inverted. Uh, <clears throat> he'd gone the way of the earth. And that's the only indication I had, by the way, that he was dead, because he didn't do anything when he was alive. But anyway, I made sure he was dead. I poked him, and he was dead. But... That's okay. No big deal. I'll take care of that. You know, just give it the old flusheroo. Um, well, my daughter came downstairs, and I just kind of perhaps somewhat too casually told her that her fish had died. <laughs> and oh, my goodness, Niagara Falls turned on out of nowhere. Oh, no, Johnson was such a good fish. And she is wailing just like instantly. Ten seconds before, I was 1,000% fine. I could have had fish sticks for breakfast that morning. But now suddenly looking there at my, my precious daughter, whom I love more than life itself, in deep agony, and I'm not a crier, but there I go. <laughs> Why? Not because I loved that fish. I'm not crying for the fish. I'm crying for her, right? I'm sorrowing with her. I'm lending her my tears as an expression of my love for her. When she hurts, I hurt. Isn't that what loving in a family means? And when you joined this church, you entered into a covenant relationship with everyone else and became part of this tiny family, tiny, tiny family. And in this family, when one member is hurting, we love them, not by staying as far away as possible. We love them by moving in and sharing their hurt, taking some of their pain for ourselves. We lend them our tears. We don't maintain social distancing. We get in there and we speak to them. We tell them with our words. We tell them with our hugs. We tell them with our tears that we're hurting right there with them. Why? Because we are for them. Not against them. For them. So take the words that God has given you and put them to work on behalf of your neighbor. Your tongue is a powerful member of your body. And how you leverage that power is up to you. Satan would have you wield its power to tear down and belittle. The Lord would have you wield the power of your tongue 
to build up the people sitting next to you, to protect the name of the people sitting in front of you, to support the people behind you, and build up this covenant community. So love your neighbor by speaking truthfully for them. I just want to close by acknowledging how hard this is. Um, Listen to how James describes this problem. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James is like, I get it. You'd have to be perfect to, to control your mouth and your tongue. The Holy Spirit knows how troublesome our mouths can be. Our, our words are powerful, and we all universally just stink at talking to each other. And James feels the weight of that, possibly like you and I. He feels the seeming impossibility of only speaking words about each other that are truthfully for one another. It feels impossible. Who can do that? Nobody's perfect. So what then? Are we all going to burn in hell? Are we all worthless garbage? Listen to one final text from Romans chapter 8. God has done. That's good enough right there. (laughs) God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Listen, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. From one ninth commandment violator to another, let me tell you some good news. God's goal for us this morning is not to make us feel terrible about ourselves. Yes, studying the law is supposed to help us see and feel the the weight and heinousness of our own sinfulness, but also, and then, to drip cool, satisfying water on our wounds by saying, yes, we are terrible lawbreakers deserving of God's wrath, but Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. But Jesus has fulfilled the law in us. Paul says, this law, this law right here that makes you feel like a terrible sinner has been fulfilled on your behalf by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not loved your neighbor by speaking truthfully for them, you are a lawbreaker and you have merited the eternal wrath of the all-powerful God. But God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Paul says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, Jesus never, ever bore false witness against his neighbor. Amen? He never did that. He never spoke untruthfully. He never exaggerated to build himself up. He never slashed at his neighbor for his own good. He never smeared his friend's good name. He never failed to protect the one standing next to him. He never failed Lazarus to move in and weep with those who weep or rejoice with those who rejoice. He honored God with every syllable that came out of his throat. And God the Father was pleased with him. Well pleased. He was not pleased with us. But he was, and he is, and he will be forever pleased with the perfect law-keeping Jesus Christ. And in the ultimate display of how God is for us, he takes and exchanges our violating ninth commandment sinfulness with the righteous fulfillment of the law through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gets our sin, and we get his righteousness to us We're righteous in Christ, friends. If you are standing in Christ, 
you are declared and credited with the perfect law of keeping righteousness of Jesus. As forgiven adopted children then, as recipients of God's loving forness of us, let us honor him by being and speaking for one another. Not to earn his righteousness, rather because we already freely received it. Amen.